I am so glad you could join us. I'm your host, Mo Gaudat. This podcast is nothing more than a conversation between two good friends sharing inspiring life stories and perhaps some nuggets of wisdom along the way. This is your invitation to slow down with us. Welcome to Slow Mo. Often I get asked if you had a chance to spend time with anyone, dead or alive, who would that be? There are many on that list, and high on the list is always Mahatma Gandhi. And while I don't have the chance to spend the time with him today, I will spend an hour with his fifth grandson, Arun Gandhi. Arun was a journalist for more than 30 years. He wrote for the Times of India and wrote for the Washington Post. He's also an author with several books, including his latest book in 2017, and one that I consider is a must-read, The Gift of Anger. Arun Gandhi serves as the president of the Gandhi Worldwide Education Institute, and he still travels the world speaking to governmental leaders as well as students about the practices of peace and nonviolence. Definitely something we badly need in our world today. Today's episode I will keep for more than an hour. I got a lot of feedback from many of you that said, don't cut the episodes short, keep the conversations going, we don't mind them being longer. So here is an experiment. Please find me on social media and truly tell me what you think. If we should keep them shorter, maybe 45 minutes, or if it's okay to run over an hour. Thank you so much for the honor that you're with us today. I've waited for this conversation for a while. I'm a huge fan, not of rock stars, but of people like yourself and your grandfather who really shape our world in ways that I believe is sadly different than our culture today. I really want to honor your presence because it's a gift to myself and to my audience today. Thank you very much. It's a pleasure to be on your show and uh, I hope I'll be able to contribute something towards it. I call myself a peace farmer. And, you know, that's <laughs> what my grandfather said, that uh, as a farmer, you can go out and plant seeds and hope and pray you get a good crop. So I go out and I plant these seeds and wherever I get an opportunity to spread the message like your show, I take the opportunity and uh, hope that some people will be influenced by the philosophy and and, uh, the wisdom of what he wanted the world to be. I'm absolutely certain you will contribute today to the mindset of a lot of people. It is, however, I think my biggest question to start with. It is sadly not the most favorable environment for peace farming. I mean, we really, really live in a culture of violence. I don't mean by that wars only or, you know, we have violence in so many places, Arun, you know, online, in the words that we use, in the movies that we watch, in the way the news portrays events. There is so much acceptance of violence in our life today. It's not the most favorable environment for peace farming, is it? Well, it is the most favorable environment because 
if there was peace all over, then there was no question of going and spreading the word of non-violence. Because there is no peace in the world and people want peace and yet they don't know how to get it. And sad part of it is that we all want peace, but we don't know what peace looks like. And so we don't know what we are trying to achieve and, and create. You can't get something that you don't know what it looks like. What does peace look like? Peace is when there is total harmony between people and between people and nature. We have to create that harmony. And when there is no harmony, there is always strife. That's what we see today in, in the world. There is no harmony between people because we are so materialistic and so consumed by materialism that uh, it has affected our way of life. It's made us, materialism has made us selfish. We think only about ourselves. We have to be successful. Uh, success is always measured by how much you possess and what kind of cars you drive. We even tell our children when they're growing up that uh, they must be successful in life and don't worry about anybody else. You just think about yourself and get to the top. So the first seeds of selfishness we are planting in our children when they are growing up, and that multiplies and eventually the whole world becomes selfish. So today we have a world where individually we are exploiting each other because we want something from each other, and nationally we are exploiting nations because nations want something from the other nation. And the rich nations, of course, always have the power to grab as much as they want from the rest of the world. And so this whole mindset has been created that we don't have to worry about the rest of the world. We just worry about ourselves. We are patriotic to our little part of the world. We have to be more uh, concerned about that part of the world. And that's made us selfish. And we, uh, we just keep on exploiting and grabbing things uh, from all around the world to enrich ourselves and our nations. That is not how we are going to create peace in the world. We can't have peace in one part of the world when the rest of the world is going down the drain. The security and stability of any nation depends on the security and stability of the whole world. It's only when we create that kind of security and stability all around the world that we will be able to live in peace here in our nation too. We can't create that with having a strong army or having an whole arsenal of weapons of mass destruction. That is not going to bring us peace. Peace is when we create that harmony in the world. And uh, the harmony can only be created when uh, we can uh, level off the disparities that we see today. When half of the world is living in abject poverty and the other half of the world lives in affluence and uh, nobody cares about the poverty, that's not the way to create harmony. So this is what I find really intriguing. Some of the concepts we are taught 
are fundamentally flawed at their very, very core, right? So we're sold patriotism as a good thing. It's like, hey, he's patriotic. That's an, he's proud or she's proud of her country. And in a way, there is sort of like merit to that. It's like, okay, you know, it's my home, sort of, you know, I want to protect my home or I want to give prosperity to my home. But then when patriotism becomes exclusive of the rest of humanity, I think we found out during COVID-19 that finally we've, we've had a good reason to realize that we're one, that we're one nation really that can be affected so heavily with any little distraction or disruption to our way of life. So how do we change those badly seeded concepts that are sold to us as a good thing when they really are not? Well, we have to do some introspection. You know, we have always, uh, because for generations, we have bought into this culture of violence, which was created to support the materialistic lifestyle that we choose. We have to uh, do some introspection to see how this is affecting us and affecting the world. And I think right now with this COVID thing, bringing a pause in the life of the people, it's time for us to examine all of these things. Our relationship with the rest of the world, how we can live in harmony with the world and with nature and stop this whole exploitation that we have been uh, doing all the time. And it's that introspection that will eventually bring about the change. It's one person at a time, like you changed because of the tragedy in your life and uh, you brought about a change. You know, we don't have to wait for a tragedy to occur to bring about a change. We have to use uh, our common sense and um, think about, you know, unfortunately what is happening is that today people are existing. They are not living. They are existing. From morning till evening, we go on doing the same routine that we have got uh, used to and, and just keep doing that sometimes mindlessly, thinking that that is what life is about. Life is not about existing. Life is about creating and, and living. And we can only live when we know what we want and what our life means, not only to us, but to all the people around us. We can't live in independence. You know, today there is this whole myth in the Western world, which is now, of course, creeping into the other parts of the world also, that we are individuals and we can do whatever we like and it's nobody's business. We are not individuals. We are all interdependent, interconnected, and interrelated, not only as human beings, but with creation and with nature. And we have to understand that and see with that kind of plan of life, where are we going with life? What are we doing? What are we achieving? How are we in any way contributing good or contributing bad? to society and what does it mean? All of these things we have to keep asking ourselves. I think it was Socrates who said, 
an unexamined life is not worth living. If we don't examine our life periodically, where are we going, what are we doing, what are we achieving, you may achieve millions of dollars in being successful business, but that is not success. Success is knowing what you're going to do with those millions of dollars that would benefit society, not that you're going to buy all the most expensive goodies for yourself. But you see, that's again, you know, these are all those badly seeded concepts, right? So the definition of success in itself is one of the biggest challenges, you know, that individual freedom that we are individuals independent of the rest of the world is a mega untruthful but deeply, deeply seeded concept. And so that idea of introspection, if you don't mind me bringing some of your childhood into this. So I heard many, many of your talks and of course read your work. I love the concept of the tree of violence. So that was an exercise of introspection that was given to you by your grandfather that really is quite eye-opening for me, which differentiates between what you call physical violence and passive violence. Tell me a bit about that. What is passive violence? Well, you know, we focus, when we talk about violence, we focus a lot on wars and fighting and killing and murders, but we don't focus on uh, the violence that we do every day, consciously and unconsciously, that hurts somebody directly or indirectly somewhere in the world. That is what I said earlier, that we are interdependent. That's something that we do individually could hurt somebody uh, in our neighborhood. For instance, discrimination. When we discriminate against people, look down on people, we become that kind of a mindset that starts dominating our way of thinking and life. We pass on that to our children and the children become prejudiced. And so that grows into the neighborhood and then you become a prejudiced person. We waste a lot of food, for instance. In the United States alone, we throw away nearly 60, 60 billion every year. It goes into the garbage. Because a lot of these uh, food stores, yeah. they can't sell after the expiration of the, Correct. Uh, the food. Yeah. And so they dump it into the dumpsters and it goes into the garbage. And why would you consider that passive violence? Where is the violence in that? Well, when you look at the world, when half of the world is starving, we see pictures of what is happening in Syria and also Lebanon and many other countries starvation of children. We see pictures of starvation where they don't have any food to eat. Now you think about it, that one country throws away $60 billion worth of food because uh, it has expired. It's not really gone bad yet, but it's expired. Yeah, a big part of that expiry process is just that legal obligations, they don't want to carry that. And at the same time, it's good for selling more. You know, if you throw away an apple, then you're going to buy another apple, basically. Exactly. And that's how we have created this whole throwaway economy. In the old days, in many parts of the world, if something went wrong, we would repair it and fix it and, and use yes, it I again. Yes, I remember those wonderful days. Yeah. Now, anything goes wrong, just throw it away and go and buy a new one. Yeah. 
And in that act, you hurt the environment twice. Once because getting rid of those things is harmful for the environment. And then you need more resources to buy the other one. So you're basically harming the resources of the environment. I think this reminds me a little bit of the story you told about the pencil that you threw away. Would you mind sharing that with our audience? Maybe they haven't heard it. Yeah, that was the catalyst that brought about this whole lesson in uh, Tree of Violence. I was coming back from school. I was 12 years old and I had this little three-inch pencil in my hand and I just, you know, like any kid, I thought to myself, this is too small for me to use. I need a better new pencil. So I just threw it away because my grandfather would give me a new pencil when I asked him for one. But that evening when I met grandfather and asked him for a new pencil, Instead of giving me one, he subjected me to a lot of questions. (laughs) He wanted to know how the pencil became small and where did I throw it away and why did I throw it away. And he went on and on and I couldn't understand why he was making such a fuss over a little pencil until he told me to go out and look for it. And I said, you must be joking. He said, you don't expect me to look for a little pencil in the dark? He said, oh, yes, I do. Here's a flashlight. And <laughs> he sent me out with a flashlight to look for this pencil. And I think I spent about two hours searching for it. And when I finally found it and brought it to him, he said, now I want you to sit here and learn two very important lessons. The first lesson is that even in the making of a simple thing like a pencil, we use a lot of the world's natural resources. And when we throw them away, we are throwing away the world's natural resources. And that is violence against nature. And the second lesson is that because in an affluent society we can afford to buy all these things in bulk, we overconsume the resources of the world. And because we overconsume them, we are depriving people elsewhere of these resources and they have to live in poverty and that is violence against humanity. Wow. Now that was the first time I realized that all of these things we do every day consciously and unconsciously, things that we throw away, you know, like I said earlier, the throwaway economy. We throw away because we can afford to buy a new one. We don't even think of the consequences. We don't think of how much it costs, how much of labor and actual costs went into making these things. That's immaterial now. It's all about affording. It's all about having money. If you remember after the Gulf War started and the economy started going down in the U.S., we had a recession. And President Bush was the president at the time. And He was encouraging people, go out and buy, go out and buy. That's how we can strengthen the economy. It's the same thing today. The only way we can strengthen our economy is by going out and buying more and more. Even if you don't need it, throw away the old one and go and get a new one. Yeah, sadly, because economic GDP is calculated as consumption and production, and a bigger part of it is actually consumption, which is really, it's just an artificial structure that is all about the finance institutions. And in a way, for all of us to continue 
to consume and to borrow and to just to pay the Fed's interest rate, really. It's just to continue to grow artificially, just so that money continues to flow in an economy that doesn't affect any of us. In reality, a three-inch pencil is a good pencil. And, you know, I can use it for a very long time and I can even take care of it and, you know, sharpen it wisely. And so I can use it for maybe weeks more than I would if I was careless. I actually, if you don't mind me bringing that point, because it's been on my mind for a while, I think the careless waste is also in the areas where we actually don't even realize we're wasting. So something like if you're driving your car somewhere and there are three empty seats in it, that's three quarters of the car wasted. And in a way that you may tell yourself, but hey, you know, I need to go somewhere. But if you carpool, you're going to save three other cars going the same distance, burning uh, fuel and wasting resources and adding heat to the planet and so on. The other one that really, really gets to me is the idea of consumption of digital resources, which, you know, all the time being on social media or being on Netflix or whatever, I think the world doesn't realize that those things actually cost energy, that the internet is having more of a carbon footprint and impact on the environment than the entire airline industry, for example. And because we don't even know that we're wasting, I definitely agree with you. I think this is a massive act of violence to be so carelessly consuming, even when we don't know that we are. And like you said, it's become so much a part of our life that we think it's just, we don't even recognize it as wasting or or destructive. We just accept it as a way of life. Would you tend to believe, just as a thought here, that all of this passive violence is what eventually leads into active, like physical violence? Yes, that's what happened. That's what my grandfather taught me when I did this tree of violence and when I did that introspection. I found that the passive violence side grew endlessly. Physical violence didn't grow very much because there's a limit to what you can do physically to somebody. But passive violence grew endlessly, and that's when he said that we commit passive violence all the time, every day, consciously and unconsciously, and that generates anger in the victim, and the victim then resorts to physical violence to get justice. So it is passive violence that fuels the fire of physical violence. So logically, if we want to put out that fire of physical violence, we have to cut off the fuel supply. And since the fuel supply comes from each one of us, we have to become the change we wish to Ah, see in the world. I love this. I love this. So the answer to changing the world really is for me to stop committing those acts of passive violence, small as they may be. Exactly. How do I recognize them, Arun? I'm sitting there, I'm introspecting, right? How do I recognize that an act that I'm taking, I'm doing, is actually an act of violence? I tell young people, ask yourself the question, if somebody were to do that to you, would you be helped by it or would you be hurt by it? And if you came to the conclusion that it would hurt you, then it would hurt somebody else too. So if someone is wasteful in their usage of fuel and you're conscious about using fuel or cautious about using fuel, their act impacts the environment and that impacts you. And so their act 
is violent and accordingly I shouldn't be doing that same act. Simple, isn't it? It's really simple. When we think about ourselves, it becomes so much easier to be careful. Yeah. You know, we all wait for the world to change. Yeah. We want the government to change. But none of that is going to change if we don't change. Yeah. And if we are the change, then the whole world changes. Exactly. The change has to come from bottom up, not from the top down. Can I address a very difficult topic here? So it's not a secret that recently there has been a lot of anger in the streets, you know, Black Lives Matters and so on and so forth. And rightfully so, very, very rightfully so. You know, the Me Too movement, you know, all of the stories that we started to hear about pedophiles or sex traffickers and so on and so forth, right? So there is a lot of anger in the street around racism, around violence and so on and so forth. In your book, you say the gift of anger. So in an interesting way, you're not saying that anger is wrong. You're saying anger is a good thing. How come? I mean, we saw what happened in the streets of New York, for example, when people came out and really were quite destructive of much property and of some, maybe even some threats to the city itself. So where is the gift in that? You see, what grandfather told me when he explained to me what anger is, he used the analogy of electricity. I know in the electrical circuit, we have a circuit breaker. When something goes wrong in the electricity, the circuit breaker trips to inform you that there's something wrong and you have to look at it. And then you set the circuit breaker again and the electricity goes. So if we consider anger to be that kind of a circuit breaker in us, telling us that there's something wrong and we need to stop and look at it and fix it so that we don't get that again. But what we are doing instead is we are not treating that anger as circuit breaker. We are treating anger as something that inspires us to get violent. Because what we are seeking is not a solution to the problem. We are seeking revenge. Now, what is happening in the Black Lives Matter thing too, it's all about revenge. It's not about solving the problem. If they were to use that anger and channel it into sitting down and trying to figure out what is going wrong, why is it going wrong, what can all of us together do to fix that and bring about a solution, we would do much better that way. But we want something quick. We want, you know, revenge. If this policeman shot the person that he must be taken off the job, he must be put in prison and locked up. Our entire criminal justice system is based on revenge. Somebody does something wrong, catch him and lock him up and throw the keys away. It's all about punishment. It's all about hurting instead of healing. A justice system should be about healing and not about hurting. That is so beautifully put. That is so beautifully put. And the insight of why are we doing what we're doing? Are we out in the streets protesting to make things better? Or are we out in the street to vent because we're angry, right? Exactly. We are abusing the anger without getting any solution to it. In fact, we are making the situation worse. 
And in that manner, is anger then, you say anger is a gift because I can channel that anger almost like a channel electricity to good use, right? Exactly. If we look at anger as the circuit breaker in electricity, then we can use it constructively and use it for a good. Now, it's very good for us to get angry. Good I mean, for us. You know, I get angry every day. I get angry every day for several reasons. But because I've been trained and taught to use that as a circuit breaker and try to focus more on the problem rather than the person, I use it uh, more effectively to resolve the problem. Yeah. Today, we focus so much on the person rather than the problem that we want the person to be uh, hurt or uh, punished. And so the whole justice system has become one of hurting instead of healing. I've always, always said that in public that, you know, one of the movements that really touched my heart was the movement of Me Too, because I'm very, very strongly against the abuse of anyone who's vulnerable, let alone a woman or a child. And to me, this is probably one of the worst crimes against humanity, if you think about it. But the way I always spoke about it was, I would have so much more loved if the movement wasn't Me Too, but was never again. Could we have directed the movement to, like you rightly said, the action that makes sure not only revenge or correction, corrective action is taken against the cases that have happened, but preventive action is taken so that no other case ever happens. And I feel from your conversation now, it's very eye-opening why we fail to do that, because we focus on the wrong side of the problem. We focus on, let's just vent this. When we calm down, it doesn't really matter anymore because even though we haven't found a solution, we haven't yeah. answered the problem. Yeah, we focus, like I said, we focus more on the person than the problem. We can find somebody like... Uh, Jeffrey Epstein. Epstein. Yeah. You know, we focus on punishing him for what he did. Yeah, I say the same. But we are not focusing on the, all the other Jeffrey Epsteins in society who are doing the same thing. You are spot on. I said exactly the same. We're focusing on punishing him and compensating those who are in a lawsuit against him, while what we should focus as well is focus on everyone else that was involved in this, then focus on every other potential abuser in the future, as well as every victim to be compensated, exactly. right? The whole basis of that is education. Yeah. We have to start educating children that uh, women are equal and women must be respected as much as anybody else. It's not about respecting only the strong, but respecting everybody as human being. Correct. So do you believe that there is a seed in this that comes from the idea that the entire justice system, even I think the entire Hollywood story plot is around suppressing violence rather than dealing with the reasons that lead to violence. And the trouble is that when we talk about nonviolence, we don't know what we are saying, just as we don't know what we are talking about when we talk, say, peace. Nonviolence is not simply not using physical force. You know, like the, uh, these movements 
not just the Black Lives Matter, but all the protest movements that come out in the streets today. They all claim that they are nonviolent because they are not killing anybody or not hurting anybody. And like in the Palestine issue, I was there in Palestine and the Palestinian young people were saying, we are nonviolent, we are only throwing stones. We are not using guns. Now that's not nonviolence. That's different violence. Yeah, that is, you're using different kinds of violence there, but it's all violence. Nonviolence is when we reach that stage of focusing on the problem and respecting the person, when we find ways of uh, stop looking at people as enemies. And uh, one of the things that I love about what grandfather said was, I'm not fighting an enemy. I am transforming a friend. Such a different perspective. A potential friend, someone that can become my friend if I transform them. Yeah. So when we stop looking at people who are opposing us as enemies and start looking at them as friends who need to be changed or need to be transformed, then we can uh, really be nonviolent. But this is almost superhuman, Arun, isn't it? It appears superhuman now because we are so accustomed to fighting and killing and destroying. But it is the most civilized way of dealing with things. I mean, there are people and little communities all over the world who are doing this every day of their life. The Amish communities in the U.S., the Amish and the Mennonites, they live on that principle very substantially. If they can do it, why can't anybody else do it? It's all about that mindset. You see, there in the Amish community, there is no greed. They're satisfied with what little they have. They don't want all these fancy cars and fancy things. And so they go around in their horse buggies and a simple life. Can I ask you for practical advice then? So, of course, I know because of my work on happiness, I meet a lot of people. I even have friends and loved ones who have a challenge channeling their anger. Do you have practical advice, things they can do on a daily basis to help with that? Yeah, that was what my grandfather taught me when I was young. In the beginning, he said, every time you get angry, don't act on it, don't say anything or do anything that is going to change your life. But write it down in a diary. But write the diary with the intention of finding a solution to the problem. And then commit yourself to finding a solution. Now, that is very important because today a lot of people tell me they have been writing an anger journal for a long time, but it hasn't really helped them because every time they go back and read the journal, they are just reminded of the incident <laughs> and they get angry all over again. It makes them more angry. <laughs> exactly. The journal should not be a way of getting your anger out onto paper and forgetting about it. The journal should be written with that intention of finding a solution to the problem so that you can ultimately commit yourself to finding a solution. You know, the mere act of while writing why you got angry and the mindset that you're trying to find a solution so that it doesn't happen again 
is putting you on the path of finding an equitable solution. I did this for many years, and it helped me considerably in, in being able to channel anger effectively. But it is a daily challenge, you know. It's not something that you can do for a month and practice and everything will be fine. Every day you find new challenges. Every day you encounter new situations. And uh, every day you get angry. I still get angry. But now I know that anger should not be abused. Anger should be used to find a solution. The first step is engage the circuit breaker. When you feel angry, don't take action that destroys your life. Sit down and write it so that it helps you reflect on what's making you angry, but write it in a way that is looking for the solution, not just to vent. And I think that's a very, very good exercise. Arun, you're a great man who is the grandson of a great man. So I can't, I can't let the whole conversation talk about just the concept. I want to talk about you a little bit as well. So I noted down three things that I've seen, two of them at least I've seen in your grandfather and in you as well. And I want to talk about them a little. One of the most loved photographs I see of Gandhi is this man who's responsible for a nation and, you know, in such a tough situation. And you see those photographs of him spinning, which is so unexpected really it's so humble in a way you said you spun with him why would you be that if this was the president of the united states we all understand how the pictures of him would look like and the fancy airplane and you know meeting with powerful people and and so on spinning what is that well there were many reasons for the spinning thing the primary reason why he discovered the spinning wheel was because there was so much poverty in India at the time, before independence. And what was happening was that India was producing a lot of cotton. And instead of converting that into cloth, the British started taking that cotton away to England. And they set up a whole textile industry based on cotton from their colonies. And uh, then they would had a captive market because the colonies were forced to buy the cloth from Britain. And that's how Britain was able to increase its industrial economy because it had a captive market. Now, in India, the common people couldn't afford this. They were living in so much poverty that uh, they couldn't afford it. And, you know, many times they were going about with the bare minimum clothes. So grandfather said that as long as we are uh, economically oppressed, we will never be able to get out of political oppression. And so he discovered this spinning wheel so that every man, woman, and child could spin the cotton, make yarn, and make their own cloth. It became a household industry. Every house could uh, spin and make their own cloth, and then they didn't have to depend on buying from uh, the British or buying from the stores outside. They became independent. And then he became the change that he wanted to see in his people. He started to spin so that people also spin. Right. So because he started spinning, more people were influenced and, and 
So then at that time, millions of people were spinning and producing their own clocks there. <laughs> but then he also discovered later on that it was a very meditative thing. It was a very calming thing to sit down and spin and to focus on producing the thread, equal thread and so on. You know, it looks very easy when you see somebody spinning. But when you try it out yourself, you realize how difficult it is to produce that proper thread for making cloth. It became very meditative also. So he used it for both economic reasons as well as meditative. Being a universalist, so you, like your grandfather, have studied several religions. And I have been touched, very touched, by your definition of the difference, if you want, between religions. Would you share this with us? Yeah, I think, you know, we were brought up to believe that all religions are equal. In fact, my grandfather used to say that religion is like climbing a mountain. We are all ultimately going up to the same peak. So why should it matter whether we are climbing up from the eastern side or the western side? It's personal choice. We are ultimately going to the same salvation, seeking the same salvation. So when you look at religion in that respect, then all the competition gets out of it and we all become equal and one. So then it doesn't matter whether I'm a Muslim or you are a Christian or somebody is a Hindu or a Buddhist. You know, it's fine. That's the way you want to seek salvation. You should be free to do it. But the problem started when we introduced competition in religion. <laughs> yeah. When we started saying that our religion is better than yours and then going out and converting people. That is where all the uh, problems started. And now we have so much of hate and prejudice towards other religions. You know, I was encountered once in a university here when a senior gentleman came to me and after my lectures and point blank, he asked me, are you a Christian? And I said, no, I'm a Hindu. It didn't matter to me. I was, you know, I believe in all the religions as being equal, but I am born a Hindu. And so, you know, that's Hinduism. So he said, oh, what a pity. If only you were a Christian, you would have been such a great person. <laughs> oh, man. This is the, the, the pure incarnation of ego. This is me against you. Again, patriotism in an interesting way, isn't it? Yeah. But do you believe there is a place for religion in today's world? I mean, there is more and more anger, if you want. Violence that comes from religion and violence that comes against religion. Well, I think we have been misled by the uh, priests in all religions. And that is because they want to keep a hold on the community and show their power and their influence on the community. So they misinterpret the religion and teach you the wrong things. And so we become victims of that. But if we um, realize that religion is not about differences, 
you know, if you really analyze each one of the religions, is respect, love, understanding. So beautiful, yes. Now, as long as you have that respect, love, and understanding, it doesn't matter whether you're a Islamic or I'm a Hindu or a, or a Christian or what. These are all superficial things. So if we really look at the core of the message, what did God teach us? God doesn't teach us about hate and killing and destroying. God teaches us about loving people and living in harmony with each other. And not seeing the other side, like you said earlier, as the enemy, but as the potential friend. As the person that can teach me something about their religion that might enlighten me within my religion, and that together we can ascend to the peak of that mountain. There was a, again, it's there in my book also, I think, when grandfather told me about the uh, six blind people who were asked to describe an elephant that they had never seen because they were blind described the elephant by feeling the elephant. Each one of them was placed at a different angle. So the person who was feeling the legs of the elephant said, this feels like a huge pole. The one who had the trunk of the elephant said, this feels like a huge snake. They were not absolutely wrong. But their perspective was very limited. Yeah. But if they, six of them, came together and put their perspectives together, they could build something that resembled an elephant. And grandfather said, that is where we are with religion. That each one of us has a very limited perspective of our religion. And we think that that is the elephant. And so we accept that distorted version as an elephant. But if we all learn from each other, we can come to understand what the elephant ultimately looks like in the case of religion, what salvation ultimately looks like, what God's message ultimately looks like. This is so beautiful, Arun. Thank you so much. I think if we just could understand this, we would make our world a better place, I believe. One last question, and I am so, so, so grateful for your time. It's been an incredible conversation. One of the most inspiring stories I've heard you speak about is the story of finding peace in a grain of wheat. Yeah, that was the story my grandfather was very fond of telling us when we were living with him. It's about an ancient king who became curious about the meaning of peace. So he asked some of the intellectuals in his kingdom to explain the meaning of peace. And everybody came there and did their best to convince the king, but nobody was able to do that. And so one day there was an intellectual who came from another part of the country and he came to pay homage to the king, and the king asked him the meaning of peace. And he said, the only person who can give you a satisfactory answer is an old sage who lives outside your kingdom. But he is so old that he cannot come to you. You will have to go to him and ask him this. So the next day, the king went to the sage 
the house and uh, asked him the meaning of peace. And the sage went quietly to the back of the house, came back with a grain of wheat and pushed that grain of wheat on the king's palm and said, here is your answer. And of course, the king didn't know what a grain of wheat had to do with peace. And he didn't want to uh, question the sage. And so he quietly took that grain of wheat, went back to his palace. He found a little gold box and he put that grain of wheat in the box. And every morning he would get up to look for an answer and he couldn't find any answers. So when this intellectual came back on a return visit, he asked him to explain. He said, you sent me to the sage. He gave me this grain of wheat. And I don't know what the grain of wheat has to do with peace. And that's when the intellectual said, it's very simple. He said, as long as you keep this grain of wheat in this box, nothing is going to happen. It will eventually rot and perish, and that will be the end of the story. But if you had planted this grain of wheat in the soil outside, it would interact with all the elements and sprout and grow and very soon you could have a whole field of wheat because it will multiply. And he said that is the meaning of peace. If somebody has found peace and if they keep it in their hearts for their own personal gain, it will perish with them. But if they let it interact with all the elements, it will sprout and grow and very soon we could have a whole world of peacemakers. That is so beautiful and such a beautiful statement to close on. It's not about finding my own peace. It's about spreading that peace. It's not about finding my own happiness. It's about spreading that happiness. It's not about finding my own love. It's about spreading that love, the empathy, the compassion. It is all about us being one. It's that idea of Nonviolence doesn't only start when violence starts, it starts when contribution is possible. It starts with the idea of I can make a difference by giving all that positivity inside me to the world. That's why I say that nonviolence is not a weapon, it is a, a way of life. We have to incorporate that as a way of life right from the beginning instead of treating nonviolence as just a tool for conflict resolution. It's not just a tool for conflict resolution. I am so, so, so grateful for what you taught me today, Arun, and the inspiration. It is incredible to have you on the show. The apple, as they say, does not fall far from the tree. As a matter of fact, you are just another amazing tree that lights our world. I encourage everyone to look at Arun's work you cannot afford to miss The Gift of Anger, an incredible book that must be read. And uh, Arun, thank you. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you for having me on the show. And for all of you who joined us, thank you so much for listening. Be sure to follow me on social media. Search for Mo Gaudet, Slow Mo, Soul for Happy, or One Billion Happy. I know you've got a lot going on, but remember... There is always time to slow down. Until next time, stay happy.